This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. You have found your way digitally to the 257th episode of the podcast. You didn't have to stand at that long rack of CDs or vinyl flipping through to find this. It was simply through the work of your fingers, tapping on your smartphone or on your computer. What a wonderful world that we live in. Today we're talking about reading big water, reading big water, and particularly big rivers. Now, I can remember the first time that I pulled up to a large river that I had intended to go fishing in. It was the White River in Arkansas, and it was downstream of the dam, and it was incredibly wide, and I didn't even think that this was the kind of river that fish would live in. Why would a fish live in a river so large, so wide, especially trout? I was used to catching trout in small creeks and little streams and smaller rivers, things that you could really throw a rock across or on a good day cast all the way across. The idea that I could find these fish, let alone catch them, was an incredibly daunting one that I had to address in my own mind as I waded out and began casting. And I can remember this distinctly. I mean, this was, I was a teenager. So this is, you know, 25 years ago. I am standing there in this river and looking at it forlorn, holding my six weight in my hand, thinking this is not the little creeks of Virginia. This is not the small rivers of Pennsylvania. This is a giant river that I just have to assume there's trout out in here somewhere. And so I began casting, randomly casting, and something amazing happened. I caught a fish. I was swinging a olive woolly bugger, and I caught a rainbow trout. And I kept catching rainbow trout from the same pool. And then I realized I was fishing a pool. I was fishing a depression in the middle of this giant river, this river that was 100 yards across, that in the middle of it, there was a depression. 
I could see it. As the sun came out, all the surrounding areas around it were a light green, and then it descended into a dark green and blue where it got deeper. And so although it was a large river, although there was a lot of things that I could focus on, although it was initially quite discouraging, what I found was that I was fishing one spot in the middle of this river that was like some of the rivers that I had fished back east. I was fishing one spot that was actually the best kind of spot, my favorite kind of spot when I go fishing on small mountain streams, a deep pool. This just happens to be in the middle of a much larger river. So what does that anecdote illustrate? Well, it illustrates a few concepts and things that I want to share in today's podcast episode as I talk about fishing and reading large rivers. And here's the first one. Get out there and do it. Get out there and get on the water. And here's the reason why. Once you get out there and you get on the water, some of those instincts that you have honed as you have been fishing on small streams will begin to kick in and you'll be able to start seeing the same sorts of things, albeit on a larger scale, but also realizing that these same features that you are used to fishing on small rivers, you can also see on larger rivers. But then even beyond that, if you've fished for any period of time, you know how to catch fish. You know what to look for. You know not only the river features, but you know what kind of uh, surface features in the water are valuable. So you're talking about seams, you're talking about riffles, you're talking about places where there's disturbances because of rocks or other things like down timber or even banks or uh, bends in the river. That's the kind of stuff that if you've been fishing for any period of time, you probably have a certain amount of awareness that these are going to be fish attracting and fish holding spots. So first, you're going to be seeing things that are similar uh, that you're used to. Secondly, you're going to just be out in the water. And thirdly, you're going to be casting and you're going to be catching fish. We catch fish by accident so frequently. And as long as we're observant and as long as we don't get locked into patterns, then catching those random fish can be very, very valuable in figuring out how to fish and where to fish. Fish are actually one of the most effective ways to learn how to read water. If you cast to every spot and you start to catalog in your head where you're getting fish attention, whether you're hooking them or you're just seeing them glance at your fly or you're actually catching them, you're going to learn what kind of things to look for, what kind of patterns to repeat as you continue to diagnose and read the water. The other part of that is uh, just make sure you don't get locked into a pattern. If you catch a fish in one spot, it doesn't mean that that similar spot is going to always produce fish or that there not, isn't a more um, a productive spot within a very quick distance or even just casting in the opposite direction. So we, you, you pattern fish, but you also don't lock in on the patterns of those fish if you only catch one or two. Because the fact of the matter is, you're going to have fish chase flies, particularly if you're in a place where there's not a lot of food or if the fish are being particularly aggressive, you will have fish move over a wide distance where you might cast 35 feet in front of you. And as you strip that streamer in or you allow that nymph to drift all the way down, that fish can, and I've seen it happen, you've probably seen it happen too, they will follow that fly for an extended distance. And it's usually as, as you begin to make that uh, uh, retrieval so you can cast again or pull it up into your false cast, that's when that fish is going to 
to be triggered and they're going to strike. So you can't be patterned in too heavily, although you pay attention to patterns. So that's the kind of the first thing broken down into like three points within like a sub point, two sub points, I guess. And this is what happens when you don't work off an, an outline. So the, the first thing is get out on the water. And as you do so, your fishing instincts are going to kick in. You're going to notice things about the water that uh, you're used to seeing. And thirdly, just getting out there is going to give you a better opportunity to catch fish than not getting out there. All right. So that's the first thing. So just get out there. Uh, secondly, break up the river break up the river into smaller rivers. Now, this is certainly not original with me. I've heard this from other people, and it's one of those things that I didn't do until I forced myself to do it. And the first time I really remember doing it is on the Susquehanna. So this is for smallmouth bass. This was not for trout uh, down where I was in the kind of the Harrisburg area, just upstream from Three Mile Island. Anyway, uh, driving over that river on I-81, it is incredibly long. I don't know how long it is. I don't know if it's a mile at that point, but it's really stinking long. And driving over the river to get to the place where I was going to put in, I just remember thinking, kind of like the the previous anecdote, like I thought that river, that the other rivers I fished before are big. This one's even bigger. It is incredibly wide. But the Susquehanna and a lot of other rivers, I mean, the same thing is true of like the West Branch of the uh, Delaware or, or the, the Potomac, other, other rivers that I fish kind of a number of times, they have islands. And those islands produce a significant helpful break. It's a significant helpful both for fishing, but also for reading the water. So there's one spot in the Susquehanna where there's two islands that effectively cut that river into three chunks. I'm sure this happens all upstream and all downstream, but there's one particular spot I'm thinking of. And so consequently, what it forces you to do, these islands that are long islands, of course, you're not going to have an, uh, an island that's long perpendicular to flow. It's long parallel with the flow. So these two islands that are about equal in length and split that river into three equal parts, what they effectively do is create three river channels. And each one is different. Each one has two banks, one the true bank of the river and one the shore or bank of the island. The other one has two island banks, then the one has a bank of the, of the island and the bank of the river. But in between those spots, you have the river slanting down from the banks, and then you have various things like boulders, and you have the grass fields that are coming off these islands, and then you have vegetation that's sprouting up from places that are a little bit more shallow. And so you don't think about the, you know, the let's, let's say there's 100 points from riverbank to riverbank. You don't have to think about 1 to 100. All you're thinking about is 1 to 33 or 34 through 66 or 67 through 100. All right. That might sound abstract, but that's the way my brain works, I suppose. And so you're, you're limiting the variables that you're thinking about. Now, this very same thing can work on smaller rivers. I mentioned before the West Branch of the Delaware. There was a, a one day where the fish were just absolutely going crazy. And it was everything I could do to focus on what, tying a fly on because so many fish were rising and there were so many things going on. And I was hearing splashes just over the little island in the middle of the river. The river is not particularly wide at this point, but it was a significant um, you know, flow uh, at, at this place in the, in the river. And what I had to do is say, you know what, inevitably, if I go over to that side, then the fish on this side are going to be making noise and distracting me. So in that same sense, you just limit your focus on a smaller piece of river. You don't look at the whole thing. You look at a smaller piece and you break it down side to side. You break it down upstream and downstream. And like I mentioned before, you're looking for those features that you know you will catch fish in anywhere that you are. You're going to catch fish in pools. You're going to catch fish in the tail end of the pool or the head of the pool. You're going to catch fish in riffles. 
You're going to catch fish on drop-offs. You're going to catch fish on weeds. And, of course, you're going to catch fish where you have seams in the water and where you're seeing fish activity, rising to insects, swiping at bait fish. You use all of those cues, and you and whether you're fishing a river that's 10 feet wide or a mile wide, that's what you're focusing on. And so by, by limiting what you're looking at at any one point in time, then you have an opportunity to pursue fish in that spot. Now, this is one of the really interesting things. Again, going back to the Susquehanna and this particular example that, that I used, you know, I was able to fish those three river segments. And so within maybe a 50-yard uh, river up and river down stretch, I was able to fish basically th that three times over. And each one was different. And um, the first, I remember the first time I I, I f was patterning this water and fishing this water in the Susquehanna, it had to do, it had everything to do with these grass beds. The fish were keying in on bait fish that were moving along the edge of this grass bed. And so that gives you the confidence to say, I don't care if this river is a mile wide, 10 miles wide, or 10 feet wide. I'm going to find a grass bed and I'm going to fish the edge of it. And because the river is enormous, I have the benefit of being able to position myself however I want so that I can make the cast that I want to make and I can move significantly without disturbing fish. One of the, 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 the negatives of being on a smaller river is that you're not going to have that luxury. A lot of my favorite smallmouth rivers are very intimate and very close. And even some spots in, in uh, like, for example, in the, some of the forks of the Shenandoah, the north and south fork of the Shenandoah, there are spots where that river gets small and you cannot make delicate finesse presentation to these smallmouth without really disturbing uh, fish downstream or fish upstream of them. You really have to conscientiously enter the water like you would for a lot of trout rivers uh, to make those casts. But on a large river like the Susquehanna or parts of the Shenandoah or ever, whoever you want to go across the country, this is a river where you can really take your time, find a place to go, make some mistakes, make some fall ca false casts, get into position and make precise casts where you want them to go. And you have all the room in the world to make your back cast and you have all the error room in the, in the front of you to make a bad cast or to move or to, to reorient yourself, to put your body precisely where you want it to be so you can make that cast. That's one of the benefits of, of fishing a, a, a larger river. And so again, I was able to key in on those grass beds. There's been times too where you find drop-offs, you find ledges, and the fish will go after that. Or you know what? The fish are going to be rising everywhere. Kind of like I mentioned with the West Branch of the Delaware a minute ago, the fish are going to be rising anywhere. And so it doesn't matter where you are. Are there fish upstream? Yes. Are there fish downstream? Yes. Are there fish in front of you and behind you? Yes. What fish do you have to worry about? The fish that you are casting to. And that's more of a focus issue. It's less of a big river problem. It's actually one of the benefits of being in a big river. If you are, if you, in for some reason, put a, a pool of fish down, then all you got to do is walk 25, 30 feet upstream and find another group of fish that's rising and start making that presentation to them as well. That's one of the real benefits of being in a, a, a large river. So uh, again, the first kind of piece of advice as you approach larger rivers is just get out there. Get out there and let your fishing instincts take over. Secondly, break that river down into smaller segments, whether that's smaller segments uh, river left to right or smaller segments river up to down, then go ahead and do that. That gives you the option and the opportunity to really fish in your comfort zone. If you have you know, primarily fished smaller rivers or creeks, then you can put yourself into a situation where you are fishing that smaller that smaller section of water. Now, one of the, the ways to do this, and this isn't always the case, and this is just one more example. One of the ways to do this is you just fish the bank. 
just fish the bank. There's very frequently, uh, if there is like a rocky bank or even a, like a cliff side of a bank and there's overhanging limbs, there's enough there where you're not going to be putting yourself at a disadvantage. If you just move yourself 25 feet off of the bank of a giant river, you might have just an infinite distance behind you of water and fish and structure and cover and stuff. But you just have that 25 feet between you and that bank of the river and you worry about fishing that. Uh, just a lot of anecdotes in this in this episode. First time I went out to the Yakagani in Western Maryland. I don't think I fished in Pennsylvania, just in Maryland. Fishing the Yakagani, which is in far western reach of Maryland, um, pretty decent sized river. And I just remember thinking that I, I I couldn't make a read of the water. I went up on a bridge overlooking the river, and I really couldn't make out any discernible features. There wasn't really any pools as far as I could see upstream or downstream that were significantly deeper than uh, than other parts. There weren't rocks. There weren't weed beds. There just wasn't a lot of the features I was looking for. Certainly there was fish in there, but. I, I said, I, I'm not very confident in my ability to just wade out into the river and start catching fish. So all I did, and this was in the summertime, was I threw on a terrestrial and I got 25 feet away from that bank and I started casting under those trees up against that bank um, alongside down timber, catching fish on terrestrials. Was it as... Um, you know, big river fishing, if you will, as casting a big stream out into the middle or nymphing up the big fish that were hanging in the faster water. Maybe, maybe not. But what I was doing was building confidence, getting fish on the line, getting my hand wet, getting my net wet, getting myself into a situation where I was happy that I was catching fish. And ultimately, I remember it was like a, like a three-day trip. I remember one day I just did that the entire afternoon and into the evening, just catching fish on terrestrials because there was so many decent-sized fish stacked up under those trees, up against that bank, underneath uh, cover that was uh, uh, close to that bank. And I just moved upstream. And then I crossed the river and I worked upstream again and uh, just fished in that way. So that's kind of similar to breaking down the river. Uh, you, you pick something that limits what's around you. Um, if you are comfortable in a small stream, I think a great thing to do is just fish the banks, fish up against the the um, the the side of the river. Now, assuming you can weigh that it's not too deep, but a lot of these rivers, you know, you're you're still waist deep or you're knee deep, and and you can not worry about all the things that's going on behind you. Um, and if you start to have the fear of missing out, then turn around and start casting in that direction. There's a chance that if something's been working up against the bank, it's going to work out in the middle of the river as well. So the first two things are get out there and fish, use your fishing instincts. Secondly, break down the river and uh, turn it into something much more manageable. Um, just like, you know, we break our days up into checklists or into calendar chunks. Same thing with the river. Break it up into little pieces and deal with those little bit of pieces, right? Third thing, and this one is going to be like, oh, well, of course, you know, this of course this works. But this works, okay? It's obvious, and that's why I'm saying it. Hire a guide hire a guide, have them get on their boats, whether it be a drift boat, whether it be some sort of pontoon situation and have them take you out and don't just ask them to put you on fish, specifically request that they help you learn how to read big water. Go out on the river that's just around the corner. It is not illogical or quitting or anything like that to spend money on a guide on your home water. If anything, it's going to be some of the best money that you spend because what you glean from that is actually going to be exponential compared to what you glean from going you know, a few states over and, and hiring a guide. That's a great experience, but hiring a guide on your home water, 
allows you to have a great experience, hopefully, but also assuming the person's up for the task, you're going to, they're going to give you tools that you can employ that are going to be at the ready every time you go out and go fishing. So hire a guide and ask them. They are not going to necessarily tell you these things unless you request it. And you are paying. If you are in the process of booking a guide, say, hey, I'd love to go catch some fish on this river. However, I also really want to get better at reading larger rivers. You could say, I do it, but I don't have a lot of confidence in it. I haven't done it because I fish smaller streams. Um, I, I really, you know, you, I'm helpful. I'm, I'm hopeful that my casting is okay, but I really want help in figuring out how to diagnose large water, read large water prospect for trout on large water. And so as we are fishing, don't don't neglect the, that fact, like don't, hopefully, they expect to fish and put you on fish also, not just to spend, uh, you know, five or six hours driving around pointing out features of the river and things to look at and looking at maps. Um, but say as you're fishing, let's talk about that. If, if, if you can help me and give me some information, both if you have a boat, or if you are a walk and wade angler, because I mean, it's the same water. You're not gonna be able to access it as easily uh, if you're on foot. But uh, they they should know. Like these are some of the things you can do as you are entering the water on foot from these access points. These are some of the things that you should look for. And they're gonna put you on those holes too. And it's always fascinating to me. And some of this has to do with the fact that all people are different. Some of it has to do with the fact that I'm not a professional fly fisher or fly fisher guide. Um, but the places that I fish. You know, I feel like I'm productive and I catch fish in it. But every time I've fished with a guide, the places that they put me on fish, there's probably, you know, half of them blow my mind because I'm thinking I would never fish in this spot. And so then what happens is you get into this, this, the op equal and opposite reaction, which is, you know, I'm just going to cast everywhere. Sometimes that works. Uh, but, uh, the asking why, why are we fishing this spot? Why are we casting in this position? Why are we putting our boat or why are we standing in this spot? Why did we pick this as opposed to that? Look at that big weed bed. Look at that big drop off. Why are we fishing here? It seems flat and lifeless as opposed to there. Why are we standing here as opposed to there? Why This feels like it's really productive water. Why, why are we putting the boat here? Why aren't we putting it up against the bank? All of those questions, you know, as long as you're not, you know, incessant and obnoxious about it, those are the kind of questions that, you know, a good guide is going to be able to answer. If there's some guys that, that really just point and they put you on fish and that has its place. Uh, particularly if you're a little antisocial and you want peace and quiet. But many good guides, most good guides, well, good guides are able to also explain why they're doing what they're doing and in a way that you're able to understand it and then uh, put it into practice. So when it comes to reading large water, finding fish in large water, I would say the three most important things is one, get out there and allow your fishing instincts to do their job. Secondly, break down the water into smaller, more manageable chunks, easy to chew, easy to digest, easy to build confidence. And thirdly, if you have means, if you have opportunity, um, if you're willing to swallow your pride, hire a guide, have them walk you through it on premises. And that will give you the information that you need to be able to get out there and catch fish on large rivers if that is not the place where you have the most confidence for your fly fishing. This week on Casting Across, the first article is called Don't Fear the Heavier Rod. Don't Fear the Heavier Rod. Every once in a while, I take a podcast and I turn it into an article. Usually it's the other way around. Usually an article that I write 
uh, gets me thinking. And after I sit on it for a few days, I think, you know what, this will make a good part podcast episode or something I've written in years past. I say, you know what, I'd like to just talk through this uh, with the uh, audience of the podcast. But this was the other way around. So just last week, last Friday, uh, I released a podcast episode called When to Jump Up Two Line Sizes. And I walked through three scenarios. Here, I just succinctly summed up those three scenarios and put it in an article. Don't fear the heavier rod. Uh, Wednesday's article is called Our Parasocial Fly Fishing World. So just like I had inspiration from my podcast to write Monday's article, I had inspiration from another podcast to write Wednesday's article. So there's a podcast that's always in the top 10, top 20 of podcasts out there and does that without being profane and without uh, resorting to true crime. So good for it. Uh, And that is uh, Stuff You Should Know with uh, Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant. Um, and I listened to that for years and years and years. Uh, some of my favorite fly fishing and hiking and road trip memories have some of these episodes indelibly linked to them. They've never done uh, how fly fishing works. And I'd, I'd love to, to have, be a contributor to that. They don't have contributors, but anyway. Um, but what they talked about in a, in a recent episode is called parasocial relationships. And this has to do with having a one-sided relationship. So I have a parasocial relationship with the Chicago Bears, for example. I watch the Bears. I watch their, you know, woeful coach. I watched their struggling quarterbacks all these years. And I watch their press conferences. I read articles about them, all this sort of stuff. And then there's other podcasts I listen to, theology podcasts, fly fishing podcasts, uh, you know, history podcasts. There's books that I read. There's, uh, you know, news anchor, local news anchors. And what ends up happening is that you know something about this person. And in something in our brain, it's kind of tricks us to say, oh, I know this person. Well, we we don't, um, but we kind of think we do. And, and that's just normal. We're, we're built that way, right? Um, but I, I contend, and I talk about it briefly in this article, that fly fishing parasocial relationships are different because they are truly ret- attainable relationships, truly attainable relationships, because uh, we are a community and there is a certain close-knit nature to it. So, so go ahead and give that article and that podcast a listening and reading to. This week's recommendation on the podcast dovetails well with the subject matter of this week's episode. And it is Elite Rio Grande, their uh, fly line that is of their top tier fly line. I've been using uh, a couple of uh, Rio's Elite series over the last few years, especially from my larger river trout and smallmouth fishing, and I absolutely love it. It costs money, but I've said this, I mean, till I'm blue in the face, I'd rather spend 30 or $45 on better fly line than $100 or $200 on a better fly rod. It's just it's going to improve your performance significantly. Uh, it is a really, really good use of you know a tank of gas, right? Um, and so the Grand Series is a line size heavier. So it's a little, it's a heavier line. So if you buy a five weight, it's going to actually be closer to a six weight, but it is on a taper that is going to fish well on a five. Uh, some science behind that. There's charts. You can go to Rio's website and check all that out. But if you are making long casts with a faster action rod, um, which I like using on larger rivers because it gives me that that power to make longer casts and then to uh, quickly and easily mend over um, currents that might be a little bit further away from me. Uh, I like using a heavier rod in those situations or a, a stiffer, faster rod in those situations. Um, the, the Rio Grande from their Elite series 
Patriots is you you can't do better than that. So uh, I'll put a link to Rio's Elite Grand Series on this podcast show notes over at castingcross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Mm-hmm.